Today we begin this journey through the Shadowlands. And uh, we're going to be talking about those darker parts of our lives. Pain, suffering, grief, evil. We've all had the, these kind of conversations around the dinner table, right? These kind of conversations where the unexpected comes up. And we don't know what's coming. And we're not quite sure how to handle it. And sometimes we handle it well and sometimes we really do not. And if you're like most people, it's kind of a mixture, right? You have your good moments and you have your bad moments. Calling this the Shadowlands because of the writings of a guy named C.S. Lewis, um, who, uh, who wrote about the Shadowlands. It's kind of a minor theme in his writing, but then they wrote a movie, a play, and then a movie about his life, a part of his life, and they called it the Shadowlands. When Lewis originally used the term, he was talking about this sort of philosophical idea that this is not the real world. Okay, the idea of the, the original Shadowlands was we live in a shadow of the real world. That heaven and the afterlife is the real world and that this is sort of the Shadowlands. The, the, uh, the darker part that we survive to get to the real world. And uh, Lewis also used the image of shadows generally when talking about pain and suffering in his 1941 book, The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis was an academic. He was in uh, England. He taught at Oxford and then at Cambridge. And he was sort of a, he was an academic bachelor, you know. He wrote about a lot of stuff and he thought academically, but for most of his life, he, he was not married and, and uh, just lived in this sort of cerebral world. Um, probably most of you are most familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, which was his children book series, but he wrote a whole number of other things, a number of other essays. But in his 50s, after a life of bachelorhood, Lewis developed a friendship through the mail with a lady named Joy Davidman Gresham. Joy was a Jewish communist earlier in her life who later became a Christian. She was married to the author William Gresham, who was an alcoholic and abuse and very abusive so she separated and eventually divorced him. She wrote Lewis, and they wrote back and forth and sort of got a friendship and started to get to know each other better. Um, eventually, she left America and went to England uh, to meet Lewis and uh, to try things over in England. And brought her sons, her two sons, uh, with them. So they, they've got this friendship, and they're, they're sort of working on this friendship, and they decide to, to, to make sure she can stay in England to have a civil union. So not a marriage, but a legal marriage so that she could have citizenship status and live there. They weren't in love. They were friends. It was just a favor from this 50-year-old guy that had never been married uh, to help her stay there. Um, this, it, Lewis at the time, by the way, was 58 years old. That year, Joy went in the hospital for hip pain, only to find out that she had terminal bone cancer. The next year, as Joy got sick, Lewis and Joy got married for real. And uh, uh, sort of in the middle of that pain, they figured out that it was more than a friendship, that it was more than a civil union, and they got married. Um, she actually went into remission for a little while, and they got to spend three years together as husband and wife. Uh, before she went back into the hospital and then really did die of that cancer. Lewis wrote about this in a book called A Grief Observed. And if you're going through grief or you know someone who's going through grief, this is one of the best books to, to read or to give to somebody else. 
because he shares his grief, his sadness. He tries to talk about his faith, his, his uh, faith and feeling the pain of that. And this is the story of the movie The Shadowlands, if you've ever seen it. Our hearts are moved by a story like this, right? Because we can identify with it. We've all been there. We've all been through difficulties, through loss. We can see ourselves in the stories. We have all traveled the Shadowlands. And we have all traveled the Shadowlands at different times and different places in our lives. Some of you are in the Shadowlands right now. Others are in between them. But we all travel them. And we all will probably travel them again. And I have found in talking with many people going through the Shadowlands that one question keeps popping up over and over and over again. And what's that question? Why? Why? People want to know why. Why is this happening? Why is it happening to me? Why is it happening now? Why isn't it happening to my neighbor? Why? It's like we we think if we could understand it, if we could see the value in our pain, then we could push through. You know, if we knew why it was happening, well, then if there's a bigger purpose, I can push through. But if I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, then I don't really want to go through it. This is the battle at the heart of the book of Job. Job is a book about wrestling with suffering and why we go through it. The book starts out with Satan coming before God with the other angels. And God shows the strength and character and wealth of Job. And Satan says that Job is only following God and only faithful because God's been so good to him. If only God would allow bad things to happen to Job, then Job would curse God to his face. God tells Satan that he can do what he wants to Job. He's going to prove it, that Job is going to be faithful. So one day Job has a servant come in and say that someone took his oxen and his donkeys. And that servant says that he's the only one that survived. Then another servant tells him that a fire came from the heavens and burned up all their sheep. Then, same day, another servant comes in and tells Job that somebody else raided the camels and killed all his servants except him. He was the only one that survived. Then Job is told that a mighty wind came in and knocked his house down, and his sons and daughters were inside and were killed in the disaster. Same day, another servant that survived. And still Job praised God. Then Satan goes to God and says, This Job guy, he's doing fine because you won't let me mess with him. I can mess with his world, but I can't mess with him. Let me mess with him and... uh, um, You'll see, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay, just spare his life. So Job gets sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, the text says. We talk about the other way, head to toe. Okay, he gets sores. He's in all this pain. And then most of the rest of the book of Job, from chapters 3 to chapter 37, is Job and some of his friends sitting around and asking the same question that we all ask when we're going through pain and suffering. Why? Why? At first, they're just present with Job, but quickly, they all have this desire to start trying to explain what God has done. This all happens in in really like three cycles of discussion is how Job is set up. In the first cycle, Job's friends suggest that he has done something wrong before God. Job admits that he is not perfect, but he doesn't deserve all of this, all of this suffering. I'm not that bad. There are certainly other people worse than me, right? They encourage him to get right with God, but Job says that only God knows 
why he is going through. And hopefully God will speak with him and tell him why sometime. In the second cycle, the friends dig deeper. They wonder if Job has presumed too much about God or about Job's goodness. If he hasn't disobeyed a rule, perhaps he has disregarded God's godly wisdom. In fact, they come back to the idea that Job must deserve it, right? He must deserve what he's getting and what he's going through. They accuse Job of rejecting God and questioning God's judgment. But Job stays pretty strong. He won't buy it. Uh, He thinks they are not in touch with the reality. In the third cycle, they they accuse Job of criticizing God, even though that is actually what they have done, right? They scoff at him, but Job gives a defense. But his friends won't take his comments. And they sort of take turns making their final arguments against him. They accuse him of presuming to criticize God. They encourage him to wait patiently, as if the real problem is that he doesn't have enough faith and he doesn't have enough patience. They also come back to the idea that God is disciplining Job. Can't you see yourself in these discussions? Isn't this exactly what we do when we go through pain and suffering? When we're in the Shadowlands, it's the same series of questions. We wonder, what did I do to deserve this? Why is God punishing me? I may not be perfect, but I don't deserve this. And I know a jerk down the street who does deserve this, and he's not getting any of it. And why am I? Right? We start to compare with other people. Maybe God is punishing my lack of faith. Maybe God is punishing my ability to be patient. But I shouldn't get mad at God, right? I think we all want to know why. We're stunned. And we're disillusioned, right? It's not what we expect. Just like it's not what Job expects. This is not what Job expected. This is not what Job planned. And I think we all go through exactly what Job went through. Is When we go through the pain and the suffering and the loss, all the control that we thought we had in our world is demolished, right? I thought I had control of my life. And then one word from the doctor, one bad test, and suddenly I realized just how much of my life is out of control. And we're all left wondering why. Take a moment, first of all, just to realize that this is a part of life, but it's also part of Scripture, okay? Scripture acknowledges these things. You can go through the Psalms and you're going to find lots of times where David is saying, where are you, God? Lots of times where the book of Lamentations is complaining about God's not following through on what they think he ought to follow through on. The Bible acknowledges these moments. It's not like the Bible pretends they're not there. They're all over the place in the Bible. And yet they're hard for us anyway. So let's go to the end of Job. God steps, steps on the scene to set the record straight. And what happens follows is about a four-chapter rant at the end of the book of Job. And it is an epic rant. Um, it reminds me almost of like a rap battle that God does with Job. And then he drops the mic and that's it. Okay, let me read a few of the lines, which I might add, God speaks in the book of Job out of a whirlwind. Okay, so it's like this little tornado. And God's like, let me tell you how this is going to be. Okay, so I'm going to read you some pieces of the last parts of Job. Um, You can read it for yourself later. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man and I will question you. And you make it known to me. 
Where, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory. And that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then. And the number of your days is great. God is like teasing Job. Everybody get this. Okay? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like this? Let me summon. Let me, let me try to summarize God. Little man, who are you to question me? Okay? Little man. Who are you? And he even says a couple times in the text, dress like a man. Okay? Pull up your pants. Let me see you, big man. Try to tell me, God, what I'm doing. And you know what's really troubling to us if we really look at the book of Job? God never tells Job why. Job never gets his answer. It doesn't come. It's not in the whole book. The whole thing is, what are you going to do? And here's the other problem. We know the answer, right? Because we read the beginning of the book. Why did the author tell us this happened? Well, Satan and God were having a conversation. And there was like a little conversation. It was almost like a little bet or a wager. Like, go ahead and see. This is where nobody takes the Bible totally literally, right? Because when somebody gets cancer advice and somebody says, well, why did that happen? I say, you know, no Christian is like, well, I think it's pretty clear. God and Satan were hanging out. Your name came up, and they decided they were, right? You're in on the joke with the author of Job, who looks in and says, why does this actually happen? Because of this thing that's going up in heaven that we can't possibly see. And how does the author even know that happened, right? The whole point of the book of Job is that we can't know the answers. And I'm really sorry about that. I wish you could. But the whole point of the book of, the jo- of Job is that it's a fruitless conversation. How are we going to know why? How are we going to understand what God is doing? We like to think so, don't we? And we all have these little churchy answers, right? Like we say, everything happens for a reason. By the way, not in the Bible. If anything, the Bible says, yeah, everything happens for a reason. It's called sin. It's because we live in a broken world. The world is not as it should be, and it is not explainable. We hang on to the hope that it'll be fixed in the end, but we live in this time that's unexplainable. The why question never gets us anywhere. It's the first question we ask, it's this question we dwell on, and it is the question that is totally fruitless. You're never going to know why. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you can look back and say, oh, it was, you know, God brought good out of that. I'm not saying God doesn't bring good out of stuff. I'm just saying there is no promise that you're ever going to know why. The Bible's answer to why is we live in a broken world. 
We cling to the resurrection of Christ as a proof that this new reality is coming. But we are never promised that we're ever going to know why, that we're ever going to see why, that we're ever going to look back and all our suffering is going to make sense. Not till heaven will that all be accounted for. Not till the very end. So let's go back to C.S. Lewis. Lewis used this term, the shadowlands, to try to say that this world was just a shadow of the world to come. That the real life hadn't begun yet. I think he put this in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? That there's the world, but there's this other magical world that you go through a wardrobe and it's sort of happening in this other place where time is different and things are different. And yet I think when Lewis found and lost love, he learned something important about the world we live in. That it's not just shadows. That it's not just the Shadowlands. That there really is something important about this world. Otherwise, we wouldn't care so much when pain happens. But that shadows are a part of this world. And I think I've been kind of heady here. But let me try to say this as plainly as I can. When you go through pain and suffering, we we make a number of mistakes. We try to ask why and make sense of it. And I want to say those are fruitless and unknowable conversations. We all do it. We all ask it. But I'm telling you, you don't know. And if I could tell you exactly why you suffer, I would be making a ton of money writing books and telling everybody why they suffer. Those answers are not there. By the way, how many of you have had kids and grandkids that went through a why phase? Right? Where all of a sudden you tell them just that, why? Why? Why do I have to do that? And you tell them, and then there's another why. Right? Well, why is that true? And why do I have, why? Because I said so. Why does that, why? Right? See, here's the thing. We can learn from our kids and our grandkids that why is actually a somewhat rebellious question. What why ultimately means is I don't trust you to have what's good for me in mind. I think you owe me an explanation. Okay? That's partly what we do when we say to God, why? God, you owe me an explanation for why I'm going through this. And yet, God doesn't do it. Even in the book, this is the one mistake. Job stays very faithful, but the one mistake Job seems to make in the book is he still expects God to give an account. Okay? So God is very hard on Job's friends, but God is also very hard on Job because God says, I don't owe you an account. So we don't understand. We try to ease the tension then. We try to talk about heaven as if it's nothing compared to what we're going to. If we just hang on for heaven, all this suffering. But, but some of this robs us of the world that we live in. And some of the main problem we have with suffering is actually how we handle suffering itself. Listen to what Lewis wrote in A Grief Observed when he was reflecting on his relationship with joy. I once read a sentence, I lay awake all night with a toothache thinking about the toothache and lying awake. Okay? So I'm thinking about not just the toothache. I'm thinking about the toothache and lying awake. Lewis said that's true for life. Part of every misery is, so to speak, the misery's shadow or reflection. The fact that you don't merely suffer, but you have to keep on thinking about the fact that you suffer. Right? Um, I not only live each endless day in grief, but live each day thinking about living each day in grief. Right? I not only 
feel bad that I lost someone, I feel bad that I feel bad that I lost someone. <laughs> right? I like beat myself. I, th- I should have more faith than this. I should have more patience than this. Right? And one of the things Lewis says is, no, that's difficult. You got to give yourself the grace to go ahead and feel the pain. You got to kind of release that need to control and that need to explain and just let it go. You got enough to worry about if you're worried about the toothache, let alone worrying about staying up late about the toothache. All our wondering, all our questioning, all our beating ourselves up just keeps us in the shadowlands. And I don't think there's a real good answer to why. The answer, I think, is to give up our why, to give up the need to explain it, and just to trust. Just trust. But maybe that, as simple as it is, is the hardest part, right? Yeah, God may have a, may God, may have a larger purpose. I think God does. And God may be sort of weaving a, uh, a great tapestry, and we can only see the underside, the ugly side of the tapestry, and we can't see the beautiful thing that God's doing. And so we do trust that God has bigger plans, and he's working good out of our suffering. I'm just saying that this side of heaven, we don't get to see the good side of the tapestry. And as we start thinking about the shadowlands, we have to start by just acknowledging that and saying, okay, God, I'm going to trust anyway. The simplest step, the first step, but maybe the hardest step in the Shadowlands is just making peace with the fact that I may never know why and learning to trust anyway. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.